Thank you for tuning in to the Change Your Filter podcast. I'm your host, Tall Paul. And as always, we are powered by Contractor Commerce. First up, thank you to everyone who has reached out with feedback, texts, emails. Those of you who came up last week at Service World Expo, Lawrence Castillo, I'm pointing at you. I love to hear what you're taking away from the podcast and what you are learning and more importantly, what you are changing your mind about. So thank you. If you would, selfish ask here, please leave a review. Go to wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, wherever else. Um, This feedback keeps my entire team motivated and fired up and just helps the overall exposure of the podcast. Okay, enough of that. Thank you for indulging. Our guest today is quite special. Rob Reynolds is without a doubt one of the more fascinating people I have ever met in my life, and I am not the sole owner of that opinion. Rob is many things, one of which is a locksmith. He's the director of operations for one of the largest home service franchises, System Forward. He's an army veteran. He's a certifiable genius, which you will hear in this interview. And I mean that. And he's one of the most effective and clear communicators that I've ever met. He's also a leader and driver of change within his community and within his organization. I hesitated at first interviewing with Rob, or I kind of just you know, moved it a couple months out because I don't even know where to start with him because every time I engage with him, I learn more and quickly realize I'm not the smartest person in the room when Rob is there. I hope to share more of his story and insight in future episodes. Please enjoy this conversation with my good friend, Rob Reynolds. One of the things you mentioned, Unique, I have three questions I want to get through today, or not questions, concepts. I want to talk about Mensa because I had never heard the term, or maybe I had heard the term in my peripheral somewhere, but I've seen you post a couple different things. You've got a passionate take on the group. I want to understand more about it and kind of why you're passionate about it. I want to talk about your father. I don't know anything about your father. I don't know if that's off limits or on limits, but Andrew on my team has said that it's one of the more fascinating stories that he's ever heard. And um, I want to talk about e-commerce for locksmiths, but more specifically, get into how you are leading kind of digital transformation, how you get everybody to see the future like you see it, and how you get a big organization taking steps forward, you know, in an industry where it's kind of easy just to do what you've been doing. So right. so where do we start with that, Rob? How do we how do we even jump into those three areas? Well, that uh, believe it or not, all three of those areas probably tie together at uh, some some level on that. And uh, so just uh, your first question was about Menza. So Menza gets a bad rap very, very often. People think of it as uh, like elitist or something of that nature, but it's actually quite the opposite. So everybody going to school knew some kid that maxed out the SAT or something, right? There's a certain category for that. Well, those kids were probably doing similar things since they were in preschool and kindergarten. And the identification of those kids early on in the process is super important, right? So that they can continually meet challenges and can continue to do the best that they can. And that's one of the main missions of Menza is to support gifted, talented, and 2E 
kids. So 2E is a new word for most people. Uh, we probably didn't hear that as kids. 2E means twice exceptional. The person mm-hmm. may have extremely high academic or cognitive scores, but they may have some sort of hindrance such as dyscalculia, dysgraphia, uh, various forms of being on the autism spectrum that could affect uh, verbal communication, nonverbal communication. And it's all about getting resources to the parents and the schools and the teachers and to the individuals themselves and also helping those kids network together and not feel so isolated. So that's that's the main purpose of that. As it ties to uh, our stuff, many organizations may, I guess the right word is discriminate. I know we got to be careful using that word, but truly discriminate against a person on the autism spectrum because they don't know any better when they meet them. But providing some education to that, they may be an incredible programmer. They may have incredible ability to process information and filter that information down or see patterns and things of that nature. And I'm so glad that more people are aware of that. Probably more people have heard the word spectrum. And and that is super helpful for the long term because we're not isolating one of our most vulnerable and capable parts of our whole humanity and society by simply ignoring them and uh, leaving them to their own devices. So. That's that's why we support that. That's why I support that for sure. And how did you become involved with the organization? And tell me about the kind of experiences in your involvement on an ongoing basis. So when I was in uh, third grade, uh, they had a caring guidance counselor, uh, Dr. Douglas Granier. He, he now works at Vanderbilt uh, Special Education, grabbed me in a class and uh, introduced me to the concept. They had some folks locally that supported kids doing that. And that's the first time that I ever encountered that. Went to a group, met other kids. And uh, much later in life, when I realized my passion for helping gifted, talented, and 2E students get the resources they need, that's when I said, well, look, I need to go investigate this. And that was in 2011. I've been a fairly active member most of that time. But most recently, I accepted a privilege of being a gifted assistant, gifted youth coordinator for Menza, which helps us organize events. For example, to go to an OSHA class for first aid, CPR and basic safety. I wish every person could go do that. But It's a real life grown up tasking. And when they go in, they know it's not just kids stuff that they're learning and can help them realize what they can do in this world from a a practical standpoint, not just academically. So I love stuff like that. Is there and I don't know a lot about you mentioned spectrum. I don't know a lot about this area, but is there a misdiagnosis or is there a convergence of like being exceptionally talented, exceptionally smart and also people you know, assuming that you're different or whatever. What, what does that look like? So it's an overlap. So there is an overlap that prior, if you think about the way that we have gone about researching things, doing medical science, things of that nature, they just weren't identified very clearly. Oh, it's the weird smart kid, right? They're a nerd. They're a, uh, there's sort of a negative connotation. Not all high functioning people certainly are on the spectrum, but the ones who are, It can so mask their abilities that if we don't address it, talk about it, learn about it and remove those obstacles, it's not good. That that will be a a bad part of our our society. And we'll look back on that a thousand years from now and go, oh, my goodness, we should have been taking care of that a long time ago. (laughs) So someone may have a very specific interest that's just not shared by a lot of other people. That may be some specific category of math or even collecting something, someone who collects certain type of subway tokens is a real world example of someone mm-hmm. like that. One of the smartest people ever lived and knew everything about them. And one of the problems is if I walk up to you and start talking about subway tokens with 
immense passion, you may look at me like, who cares about subway tokens? This person is not smart because they're not thinking of things that I think are important. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest ones that that causes that little flinch. Could be a movie. Someone knows every line of a movie. They know about the theory and they start describing the movie. And someone says, I thought that was just a dumb cartoon. And mm-hmm. so it can be hurtful, you know. Thank you for sharing that. The reason I asked that question is every time you post something on Facebook, I want you to know that I read it. The algorithm knows that I read it and I spend time because you've got such thoughtful consideration of broad topics and controversial things. And and I just I, I love it. And I love how your mind works. And, and I um, I hope our listeners kind of I know it's a wall right? of text. Uh, people do. I, I know that I'll never be a TikTok superstar or anything like that. <laughs> writing a five page you know, Facebook post. But even uh, TikTok is interesting. Even on those long ones, about three percent of people will watch the whole thing. And if it's 100,000 people, that's a lot of people got that message. So you don't have to communicate to everybody. If it just gets to the people who needs it, I'm happy. That's that's perfect, you know. Now, are you doing TikTok for the locksmith world? Oh, yeah, we do. Uh, we do TikTok. We've got an e-commerce uh, inspired theme uh, to that. And yeah. in, in, as we get into that, I'll give you the, the shortest version for your second question from my uh, biological father. So I, the, I never met my biological father in my life till I was 40 years old. That was about mm-hmm. 11 years ago. My mom said that uh, she met him. They were together for a short period of time. Uh, within about a month of her finding out she was uh, pregnant, he was gone. He, they, she never even got the chance to tell him anything. He just disappeared off the face of the earth. So we went for a long time. I had not a lot of pictures or anything like that. And he, my mom only told me a couple of things. One, that he was in Vietnam and had gotten some sort of medal. She knew that. And that he was a member of Mensa. That was the, the first time I'd ever even heard the word. So as things progressed, my son walked up to me and as, as of 10 years ago, he's only 21 now, and said, have you ever thought about finding your father? And I said, never even one time. It had never crossed my mind to go type the name or anything into Google. So we went, got the picture. On the back of the picture, it said his name and the word Cajun Bob Toms. So we typed into Google Cajun Bob Toms. Uh, I do this as a party trick. I ask people just look it up so they can see what it is. You may have done the same thing. And uh, clicked on images, saw a variety of images there. I printed those out, drove over to my mom's house. I said, with no pre-warning anything, I said, do you know who this is? And she said, yeah, that's your father. There you go. You found him. You know, it was instant uh, recognition. So I reached out through the website for uh, his, his unit, his military Marine Corps unit, contacted the webmaster. And within a couple of weeks, I was talking to him. And uh, so we uh, we agreed to meet. I went to uh, his location and it was a very interesting uh, uh, conversation because what had occurred uh, back in in 1970, the end of uh, right beginning close to New Year's of 1971, when I was born, he had told my mom he was an investigator for Lloyd's of London investigating church fires in Baton Rouge. But that was not the case. That was a cover story. Uh, he actually worked for a three-letter agency who was there investigating uh, bombings of black churches during that time. And it's something occurred and their cover was blown. He had to leave and went on a different assignment. And literally in the article, I found out that he went to Greece immediately uh, after that for uh, more duties. Uh, he retired from that organization many years later and became a veterans advocate uh, the whole time. So while we were at his at his house, uh, he says, come down. I want you to uh, see something. So we we go down the stairs. 
And uh, he, he shows me a number of sort of military governmental things that he had acquired over his life, collectibles and things. So if you're interested, Cajun Bob, there's a very famous photograph uh, of him called Cajun Bob that was taken on February 15th, 1968 at the Battle of Way. And basically it was in Life magazine. It was uh, one of the pictures in there. He was also on the cover of Time magazine from the same picture with Nixon. Uh, because 68 was the start of the Tet Offensive. It was a very critical time there. Uh, but when uh, Daddy was there, essentially his platoon leader, the captain, everybody had died and, and he was a staff sergeant. Uh, so he was actually in Marine Corps, not a draftee from before. And he was promoted f- battlefield commission to a commissioned officer uh, and led this assault on the Dong Bai Tower saved numerous people. They just dove into recoilless uh, rifle fire. There are two versions of the of the write up for the uh, Silver Star. One is a short version. One's much longer. The longer one is incredible. He and his friends, uh, Sewell and Tate, who was his best friend from New Orleans uh, that was with him. It's, they were friends to the end. And I'm still in touch with Sewell. And, and he said, if it wasn't for your daddy, none of us would have made it back that day. So that's uh, I get the goosebumps. So that's the, the short yeah. version of the Cajun Bob story. I want the long version. The long version is was best captured by the museum, which mm-hmm. is the uh, Museum of Modern News in Wa- in Washington D.C. They did a huge exhibit where they had recorded the audio and the narrative, and they interviewed him and all of the soldiers and the chaplain and everyone who was involved. And uh, he had never told me those stories. So me, like he just told me a little bit. Going to the museum is when I actually heard him for the first time. Uh, discuss that stuff outside of his relationship with me and the timing of those things. So now you mentioned visiting his location, but you didn't say where you visited him. And is that intentional that you omitted that or is that part of the that's kind of quiet? It was absolutely for uh, did not want any doesn't need people to know where he was at or any of the people where he associated with where that was at. That's so uh, they try to take care of those folks after their tour of service, you know. So he was relatively anonymous to most folks. He was uh, he was upset (laughs) of all of this. He was a little upset. I don't think he knew how the web and stuff worked when he originally did the interview that got posted. uh, And he actually asked them to amend some of that to not say too much. So, yeah. And you mentioned a three letter agency. and I assume you omitted the actual three letter agency out of respect for privacy and things like that. Yeah. Okay. Gosh, well, I am like tempted to just pause this and go on a Google hunt of all this information uh, to learn more about Cajun Bob. I will look that up. And thanks for sharing that with our listeners. Stars and Stripes, Cajun Bob. If you did that search, if anybody just wanted one Google search, Stars and Stripes, Cajun Bob has a very concise narrative, very respectful as well. And let me make sure I understand this. So you were identified as part of this Menza group and then later learned that your father was too, but that connection didn't come when you were younger. Interesting. Not really. It was a, uh, a also, oh, a, a, like an also fact about him, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, came up. So what were the things when you were a kid, going back to what we are talking about earlier, um, what were the things that you were particularly interested in when you were a young child? So the computers very, very early on. I had a a cousin who basically just started giving me computers uh, when I was a a small child, Uh, Atari, Vic-20s, Timex Sinclairs, and uh, they've never been far from me. 
and information and, and what most people would think of as outlining or mind mapping is something I discovered very early on. Uh, so I like to outline everything, like break I've everything down. And yeah. uh, so, so that and it, I mean, literally as a five, six year old kid, I was trying to outline uh, the little reading books and trying to write it out. I, I have a little dysgraphia, so it never looked very impressive. Doesn't look, but if you can read it, it's a, you may get some uh, some content out of it. That's why I like typing now, right? <laughs> yeah, and I, well, I've been in meetings with you where you will talk, you know, on one subject for a long period of time while it is being trans, not necessarily transcribed. Like you're going off of a transcription, you've thought right. through every single logical step, and that's uh, it's quite impressive. So, what tools do you use for? outlining now or how does outlining uh, play into kind of how you operate the businesses you're involved with and how you manage your teams? So it's the simplest way for me to say it is it's really two things that happen at the same time. One is I'm just trying to regurgitate from myself my understanding of something to the nth degree. But the more important part of outlining is not for my understanding. It is for other people's understanding and most importantly, is to solicit their feedback and input in such a way that they maybe no one has ever done to them in their life where they go, oh, this guy isn't just asking me random questions. Boy, he's really setting this up to extract what I really believe and document it in a, in a context that is actionable. Right. Mm -hmm. It's uh, I'm not an academic. I'm not a big, uh, you know, go get my PhD to write stuff. I always want some practical outcome at the end. If that cheapens my my style or philosophy, it's okay because I make up for it with the helping people and them being appreciative of it. And that, that means everything to me. That's worth more than 10 PhDs to me. So that's why I like doing it. Yeah. Well, I've, I've just, you know, being a part of the just projects on the peripheral with you, it's, it's amazing how you can keep an entire organization kind of moving forward. And I want to talk about that, but I want to start with, how did you end up in the locksmith world? And um, then we'll get into the e-commerce stuff. So I worked at a, an adult psychiatric facility that also had adolescent care facility. I was a mental health technician while I was going to school and in the army. And I got exposed to a locksmith there. I had done some locksmith work prior on details when I was in the army. So I had a consciousness of it. And literally, I, I had talked to him about pay and how much money they made and what that involved. And when the hospital literally shut down, they had ceased the funding of Medicaid and Medicare for mental health. Right. So they just turned all these people loose on the street, Candace. And, and I had to find a job that day. I found a ad in the classified ad uh, for a locksmith apprentice. Didn't pay very well. Uh, but when I met the person, I realized that they were a good teacher. And that was somebody that I'd be super compatible with. And that's how I started. What sucked me in about it is very simple, is if you tell me it's something that you're not supposed to know or you can't do that or that's that's forbidden information or something. I'm like, why? What does that mean? Wait, wait what are you trying? What are you trying to hide? So it, it, that's why I took an interest in it. It's uh, it's a lot of a lot of details. There's lots of principles and things of that nature. But at the end of it is it's a pass fail system. The car works, the key turns, it's A or B. I don't have to rely on someone else's subjective judgment of my performance because it functioned. It worked. It's indisputable. Did it or did it not? We very often have those outcomes. It may be a, a process to get to that of uh, decrypting and communicating and taking apart electronics and doing R&D to figure out what it is. But ultimately, that's what the goal is, is some successful mission. And I love that. That's uh, That draws me in. We're not just working to work. 
Do you feel like that's unique to locksmithing or could that be applied to other kind of home or personal services? I think that there are a lot of other areas that probably attract problem solving oriented people. We tend to attract people very similar to what we just described there. They are someone who wants more of a hands on cognitive interaction than just a purely school-based cognitive interaction, nor do they just want to do one specific hands-on repetitive thing. Mm -hmm. Some people, they don't want to go to work and have to solve all the problems of the world. They want to get it done, go home and enjoy their, enjoy their life. For us, it is very much a lifestyle job. And whatever that problem is that's keeping us from moving forward, all of these locksmiths want to help. It's one yeah. of the most helpful communities. And so, so I know it's probably more densely present in our industry than every other industry, probably on average. But even HVAC, C-Techs, there's so many people that are so technically minded that want practical outcomes, not necessarily just schoolwork. I love it. So, yes, I think so. <laughs> so what if you, uh, you know, imagine you weren't a locksmith. What path were you going down? Where would you have ended up? You wouldn't believe me if I told you. So. What I wanted to be is I wanted to be a test developer uh, who created better testing and screening processes that didn't discriminate against low income, didn't discriminate against people based on race, didn't discriminate against people based on uh, sex or all of these other things that I saw in testing and the history of testing. The, the ugliest version of that is if someone wants to look up voter test in Louisiana during some of the most horrible periods of our life. And that testing is a double-edged sword. It can be used for greatness or it can be used to hurt and destroy. And I always felt that I had something to bring to the table to try to continue to make things more and more fair. But that involved about 10 years of education purely for an academic perspective. And I wouldn't know if it'd be successful till 20 years. So I took a safer route, but I still try to uh, stay abreast of that stuff and make sure that uh, if I see anything, could be a simple correction to something that I know about. I'll contact the test manufacturer. I don't care. I've, I've talked to folks like that before. So I've tried to still implement some of that in my life while being on a more practical vocational track. You know, give me an example of something you would identify as problematic in a test, or maybe just some classic examples, or or share the um, the I'm I'm kind of familiar with the voter study. I think yes. through one of my courses in school, but yeah, share that with me. So very simple example is. Paul, you could be one of the smartest human beings to ever walk the face of the earth. But if you came from a home that did not read to you, you didn't have early pre-K education, you mm -hmm. did not have uh, nutritional needs met at certain times and things that can absolutely restrict how far you can go in this world based on your starting conditions. So one is making sure that those starting conditions and the things that can truly affect stuff like that is, is addressed. And then secondly is uh, vocabulary. Vocabulary is very much a, a measure of, of, you know, we think of someone who uses big words. But if you think about it, what about a nonverbal person who is a mechanical person? Uh, they may never develop that high level vocabulary. So trying to assign one number to someone uh, has always bothered me and that there's different strengths. I cannot play piano. I don't think I have the capacity to ever be a virtuoso piano player, but that doesn't mean that my life is over. Just because I don't have a big vocabulary, if someone doesn't have a big vocabulary, doesn't mean they can't go out and create potentially a, a, a giant engineering firm. That builds stuff all over the world. And that was the sort of discrimination that I saw was discrimination based on the people and the types of intelligence that they were trying to measure. So 
and I'm and I'll get a little preachy on stuff like this when you ask the right question. I'm sorry, but that's uh, it, no, and that's fine. the misperception that I saw. Hey, you can't go to this great school because you didn't know enough words. Hmm. Words aren't my strong point, you know. Can can I go to an engineering school even if I don't write up giant flowery stuff? I think you should. And there shouldn't be a test that prevents that. So what sparked it? What particular test? Or is this something you experienced that led to the passion? Oh, yeah. It, it's uh, I, I remember seeing uh, super smart kids in my class when I was uh, young who were didn't want to take tests. They just they testing was not a good process for them. And it absolutely undermined who they were. Getting the results of those tests is not always clear to tell somebody that. Uh, and sometimes it's a one and done. You telling me that you gave some kid a test in third grade and that's going to determine the rest of their life. What if they took the test again and they had skipped the mark, like they filled out Mm -hmm. the wrong question and all of a sudden they've been affected? I just want to be on guard and make sure people are aware of that. But also the reverse is that for certain groups of people, for there's just no better way to objectively kind of check that kid out because they don't have the strong verbal or something like that. But then you look at their score and go, holy moly, this is going to be the next Einstein in physics or this is going to be the next big construction company or the next uh, adaption to energy, you know. And so that that's what I saw. And that can do that to an extent, but we still have to be very careful. Do you think that the public education system is more fair and equitable now or less or moving in one direction or the other? So the problem is, imagine if we stop measuring the things that could tell if there were disparities. If we said, Mm -hmm. this is just too, this is too hard for us to understand, we're going to stop doing that. So a recent example, just to give you some, some metrics. Right now, a high IQ testable person, someone who scores very well on that, but on any form or when they go in school, they identify as black or African-American. They, they are 66% less likely to be referred to a gifted and talented program than a white student. That is not a, a something from the Jim Crow days or crazy. That's still modern stuff. And the solution to that was to say, okay, well, let's stop measuring uh, this at all. That is skipping all those kids because the method, they, the preferred method or, or one that may seem more uh, gentle is, oh, a teacher recommends it. That's absolutely has proven to be a horrible mistake for those subjective. kids. Subjective. Yeah. Sub- as subjective as it gets. In fact, the other statistic is that an African-American black child with a black African-American teacher is three times more likely to be referred to a gifted and talented program. And keep in mind, this is all they go back and review this stuff and do all the testing to figure out if they had missed something. And that's where all of this data came from, from people who were being conscientious to question it. So to me, that's probably one of those things where it seemed like good intentions. Maybe the tests are bad. Right. We need to continuously improve tests, but we can do that. We can keep making things more and more fair. So I'd rather work on that than just give up. How uh, this isn't really a question. I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. But um, I saw an exercise once that showed, you know, it's kind of talking about the argument that everyone has fair opportunity, whether you're born with a disadvantage or whatever. This is America. Everybody's got opportunity. And then the exercise showed how some people's starting line is much further back, right? Because they were born into a certain situation or to a certain household or to a certain household income where they lost a parent. How do you even out the starting line or do you, or how do you 
how do you give kids a better shot who weren't born into the types of households that you know statistically produce better outcomes for kids? So again, here getting into just opinion stuff, a, yeah. a little bit more on my side of that. But one of the things that I know can do that is access, right? So very often what people lack is access to the resources they need to go back literally to the very beginning of this conversation. That's why I've honed in on that is that if you have someone that is a, a mom, a dad, an aunt, a grandparent that's taking care of a child, if they are aware of resources to go, hey, let's go talk to the men's of people about our 10 year old that's that, you know, can memorize 10 decks of cards. You know, isn't that something? Let's, who do we talk to about that? The school may not have someone to talk to. Having an independent resource that folks can reach out to just to engage with and get some resources for them to do. To me, that's number one. The second one is COVID proved something to me that education and the online forms of education that we're developing, I don't think one supplants the other. I don't think, you know, we should lock kids in cubicles at home where they're, you know, being programmed or something. They have to have social interactions and stuff. But for those people that are starting a hundred meters back from the finish line to get a thing that says, Hey, get on the conveyor belt. At least you'll skip half the line. Okay, great. That little sort of information. And then lastly is social media and the support that we have been providing to our own people, our own teams, our own communities, that if you go out and you say, Hey, how do I possibly get ahead when this situation is upon me? And you have caring people that can come in and say, Hey, here is a course of action. Here's another option. Did you know about this free online enrichment activity? Hey, with one button, they'll subsidize. You can get a scholarship for this. So to me, it flips the script because then instead of having some, hey, you're just some super kid. You were born next to the berry bush. That's a reference to Age of Empires because Age of Empires always starts every player within three squares of the berry bush. If you start on Nomad, the rates of who wins and loses is almost completely determined by the location of the first berry bush in a game of two even competitors. And that's something that I used as an analogy for that. But particularly early on, pre-K and pre-K education is one of my, my warm and fuzzies. Giving the teachers the resources they need to help those kids. And let's be honest, a lot of this stuff is just not funded. It's not uh, attracting people who want to go make $100,000 a year to go jump in and teach a pre-K class. Why not? There, there should be some folks, and I'm not saying, there, I bet you there's plenty of pre-K teachers that could go out and make $100,000 instead of doing what they're doing, but how can we make that attractive? And so my, my big idea of that stuff is more like a cellular. That teacher is connected with the parents. Their relationship with the parents is just as important as the relationship with the student to be able to get those resources out and feed them and and keep them going because once you get some momentum you have some hope and that's all i want to see is i'd like to see every kid to say yep i may be starting 100 meters back but i got hope and the resources to actually cover that 100 meters faster than they would on their own got it thank you for sharing that let's um let's talk about because i want to be respectful of your time and i know what kind of schedule you hold let's talk about papa lock let's talk about the locksmith world let's talk about kind of your view of, you know, the transformation, you know, meeting consumers where they are, digital technology. I want to talk about all that. And I just remembered that I saw a stat from you that 70% of people only have one car key. So I'm completely going backwards, but let's talk about that. So 
with uh, so number one, Papa Lock is a franchise. Um, one of the hard times that I think I've probably gotten from my fellow industry locksmiths is they think a locks Papa Lock is a big company, and it's actually just the reverse. We have a very small franchise or staff, myself and some support personnel. Each individual franchisee is on their own insurance, their own P&L, their own area. No other franchisee sends them money to help subsidize them. They're all on their own. So we've always been more uh, aligned with small business and independent business because of that. And our goal is very simple. We want to be the easiest way to do business with a locksmith because let's let's be perfectly honest. Nobody wants to wake up in the morning and say, boy, I sure hope I lock my keys in my car so I get to use Papa Lock today. Boy, I'd really like to lose my key to see how well that Papa Lock e-commerce system works. That's not how it happens, right? It's someone, the worst possible timing. They're going to be upset. They're, they're, re- they're reaching out for solutions. They don't know what the solution is yet. When they encounter Papa Lock, I want it to be over before they even realized it was a big problem. Right. Versus the opposite, which is to call someone at random from Google. Right. So Google doesn't have a lot of licensing or anything. Just anybody who calls himself a locksmith can go take out an ad in Google. And if they call locksmith, you know, well, how much to unlock my car? Well, it's twenty five dollars and up. Oh, that sounds pretty good. Come on out. They get out and they charge them two hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. To do that, that is a very common scenario, and it's called the locksmith scam. And people who behave that way are called scammers, and it's become a sort of a pejorative now. And I try to avoid that because it could be a misunderstanding too. But that is a, sure. a philosophy. With the entire goal of e-commerce from the beginning was to improve the lives of our customers and to improve the lives of our staff. So now let's go back to that person that just lost their key. They've been looking for three hours. If you lose your key and you look for it for three hours, which I have dealt with those people my entire adult life, there is this hopelessness uh, like you just gave up. You could see a defeated sort of thing. And when they call us, if we're talking on the phone to them back and forth, we got to ask some questions. Where are they? What, what kind of car is it? You know, is this something that we service to get a, a proper price? And very often people are like, what do you need to know all that for? How much is it? And it's like if you're in. St. Louis, Missouri on a BMW, it's going to be different than enough. You're on a Ford pickup truck in Toronto, Canada. We, there's no way to avoid it. So we said, well, let's make it automatic. Let's make it a one click lockout. Right. So, it, hey, is this your GPS location? Yep. Would you mind giving us your phone number? Sure. And then once we get that phone number, boom, our whole dispatch system, everything is integrated. So that was the, the goal is because I know that I can't make that car any more starty than anybody else, right? When I, when I make the key and it starts, it started or it's not started. Now, how long the key lasts and does it last, you know, does the key fall apart? And the quality is certainly a measure of that. But for the most part, people want to get to that end state. We just want to get them there in the easiest, least stressful way possible. Now, what about employees? Like, well, Rob, doesn't e-commerce, that only affects your people. Y'all are a corporation. The purpose of a corporation is only to drive profit, Right. I think that's some nonsense from like the 1800s out of just old dusty books. That's not the purpose of a corporation. We're here to survive. And if you want to survive, then you have to adapt to what's going on. So imagine the employee who has to talk to that person. Is it going to be stressful to them? Absolutely. It's going to be more stressful to them. But when they get it, the customer has had all the time they needed. So primarily it affects awareness. 
so people can see us better on the internet because of e-commerce. It affects the consideration phase because they can peruse. They can say, this is my exact button configuration. Oh, I like this price. Oh, I understand this is an OEM and this is a remanufactured. I'd rather use a recycled product, right? It is conversion. Conversion, hey, you're locked out. You need a key. Hey, it's $100. Mm, okay, well, let me let me call you back. Well, maybe they forgot who they called. Whereas when they go through e-commerce, they can leave it on their screen all day and keep coming back going, am I tired of looking for this key yet? Yes, I'm going to order it. And then lastly is loyalty, the loyalty phase of this. If I'm certainly the most biased person on the planet to make this statement, but if I got locked out of my car and I had to choose the traditional way or the key commerce way, it's it's no doubt because it's going to take eight seconds. I don't have to be embarrassed to call someone and say, I locked my keys in my car or any of those things that make people feel uncomfortable. So for me, has it made us billionaires overnight? Nope. But it has progressively changed our system. The most important part of this, as far as the things that you've got to see, Paul, is the transition from how we've always done it to really the best way to do it which are two totally different things, right? I have stuff set in my head because mostly we were dependent upon super expert humans. And if you catch that person when they're busy, they can't get to the phone, their hands are full of little spring-loaded parts, there's a delay now in getting that answer for that customer. When when all of a sudden that, that locksmith sees that they have a responsibility to reach out, now the pressure's on them to reach out and communicate. Whereas when we do everything up front, everybody's warm and fuzzy from the very beginning. And I love that. We couldn't have done it. There's no other way to do it unless we have giant smoke signals in the sky that people could see and just, okay, here's, look, my joke has always been, if you could just look up at the sky and wave to the satellite and it dispatched the calls to us, that's the only improvement I can see over what we've built with contracted commerce. That's quite the compliment. Well, thank you. What are your customers saying about it? It's uh, overwhelmingly positive. Yeah. The, the negatives, the few negative things that we've come back are things that you would perceive is that if we didn't offer the service in the electronic version, hey, y'all didn't have this ability to go install a master key system on a whole building. It's very complicated. We have to right. go look through the building. So we're continuously trying to improve those pieces. But for the people who did use it, it the number one response was, was, why did you use it? They said, I didn't want to speak to anyone. I just didn't yeah. want to spend the time to literally speak to someone to try to get them to understand my problem, which is probably the most stressful part. I could see my solution to my problem and how much it costs directly in front of me without having to have a debate or a discourse or a, or a, a protracted yeah. uh, description of, of while I'm in a bad mood too, right? Yeah. And it seems like people trust technology more than they ever have, even though in some areas of their life, they may not. They're certainly content trusting website. I'll give you a weird one. So we have different adoption rates in different areas for e-commerce, right? Paul? Uh, to, you know, I track that every day. So oh, yeah. one of the biggest ways that that affects people is that in an area that is better branded, people just know the name. If we interviewed 100 people walking in the mall, the a higher percentage. So people who really, really trust the brand use the electronic implicitly because that trust carries over to the e-commerce system. 
So this is why I say, hey, e-commerce may not be the right answer for everybody. If, if you have a low trust business in the first place, trying to create that low trust business in an electronic format is probably not going to help you because you, you didn't have a good business model in the first place, if that makes sense. This may be projecting a bit, but when you think about the markets that you're not in or you know the markets where there's locksmiths who just aren't going to do e-commerce ever, right? What type of risks do those types of companies face? So I think it's easy for me to shoot off at the mouth for a lot of stuff that might sound sexy to people because we are a, a bigger, larger, co more coordinated organization, but that I don't hold other people to when I look at them through the empathetic lens. A single owner operator locksmith is 94% of our industry based on the national locksmith, clear store and a lower forms. So that literally means somewhere between four and 6% even have one employee. So the first knee jerk reaction is, I don't need that. I just answer the phone in my truck and just do what I've always done. But what about driving safety? If nothing else, someone's driving in the vehicle, picking up the phone, whether it be hands free or they got to hit a button. I'm so paranoid about hitting someone because I'm doing something distracted driving. Can we fix that? Yeah, we can. Even for a single owner operator. Forget about all the fancy stuff with pop lock pricing the jobs, guaranteed, you know, delivery times and all that stuff. What if when someone calls your phone and says, hey, I'm driving, please fill out this form and, and they get a link and then at least fill out, hey, I need your name, your address, and I'll call you back. If they did nothing mm -hmm. but that when they were in the safest scenario that they could be versus being forced to pick it up, might it cause a delay? Maybe. Does everyone not want to fill in a form? Maybe. Is it better to be dead or alive? That's not a maybe, right? It's better right. to be yeah. alive in virtually all cases. And that just that little technique for exchanging information and picture this, Paul, picture me riding in a thousand locksmith trucks over all these years, watching somebody drive with a headset or a phone, trying to oh, jot yeah. stuff down. And I'm going, I got to fix this. This is if I don't fix it, who will? You'd mentioned something recently about locksmith safety that I thought was interesting. Something about maybe locksmiths being shot at or confused as someone else. Am I Am I remembering that correctly? So it, it, is, it is no uh, uh, illusion that there is a rise of sort of uh, different types of crime, different areas mm -hmm. of the country. It's not true of every area. It's not true of every crime. But economic systems degrade. People within that economic system may get more desperate to do stuff. And one of the things is that we don't want our locksmiths hurt if they're on the road. Anybody run up to the van while they're working or anything. So one of the simplest technologies that we know of is video. So we know people put video cameras on their business. They put video cameras on their house, right? This is a normal thing. But very, very few people have any sort of video associated with their vehicle, except maybe a dash cam. Mm -hmm. These new systems, because technology has gotten cheaper and cheaper and the wireless connectivity has gotten easier to pull off, you can put a 360 array on a locksmith van that if there's any movement or even a panic button, will start transmitting video to trusted sources or even live stream it. So I'll give you an example. We belong to a locksmith group has about a thousand people in it. Imagine if you were a member of that group and one of the little benefits was, hey, if you sign up for a panic button or something where you want us to help monitor your system, go put your link in here. And if it pops up anytime, day or night, there's some nosy locksmith, right? It's just we're using probability and communal actions to help an individual. And in my book, that's enlightened self-interest, but it's powered by that little technology. So somebody walks in front of my van while I'm parked at a hotel working inside. 
I get a text message. I look at my phone real quick and it shows me a short 10 second clip of the part. They just walked by. But what if they sh- the person looking in the window, you know, and then reaching back to go. I, I can react differently. And most importantly, I don't have to run out of my house to see what's going on and expose myself to the situation. And it's one of those things I think is just early in the adoption cycle. Yeah. But I can see in five, 10 years that cars, if you buy a certain type of car, it says, yeah, it's got 360 cameras that you can use for evidence to the police, yeah. which is the, which you can't find. Go Google it. You know, we don't have that yet. And it exists. Talk to me about more about the tension of managing what, you know, the way something has always been done versus the way it should be done and how you've managed that tension across your organization and gotten the majority of your organization moving towards e-commerce. It's in my mind. So this is a a, a wax, a little philosophical. I don't believe in tabla rasa that people are just an empty vessel and they're coming to me to get the information they need. And then I'm going to dump that information in them. And then they're going to be educated on what we just talked about. I think that's delusional. I've never seen that work. You have to start with something someone knows, some core belief, whether it be a technical belief, a moral belief, logistical, whatever, and start from there. And what we have done is with the way that we've shared this information and communicated with the teams is we have given them all unfettered access to the process. So I didn't create it. Andrew didn't create it. Sean didn't create it. To some degree, Popalock didn't even create it because we had input from multiple organizations. So what we ended up with is instead of telling them, hey, this is what you're going to do, we're like, hey, how would you like this to work? When you lead off with that, you're not trying to force anything down anybody's throat. Uh, we watched a short video the other day about, I think it was like an FBI negotiator person or something on a short video clip. And what they were referring to is it's almost impossible to get people to say yes or agree to anything because I don't want to agree to something until I know all the details and I know it in and right. out. And I want to be, but imagine the, the conundrum that it call it, it causes, which is that means I can't do anything new unless I've already done it before in the past. And so that's the hurdle. And 100% is by asking questions and getting that feedback. And then all of a sudden, somebody trusts you a little bit more, right? Oh, I, I, man, I, I asked them to do that. And look, it's doing it now. That's what's made our, our bones with our Popalock people and contractor commerce as well is pull the, I think they refer to it as pull the uh, corks out of your ears and stick it in your mouth and listen. And that's how the thing <laughs> got built. Nice. When you look out into the future, I mean, you mentioned kind of waving your hand to the satellite. Um, when you think about Popalock and you think about just, you know, the connected consumer, what does the future look like for you and for Popalock? I'm going to throw I'm going to throw Google right under the bus on this. I'm so glad somebody said that. If we imagine everything is just these abstract forms like a search engine or a this or it's not a search engine, it's Google, right? There's this giant massive. They hold a virtual monopoly. It's certainly not a true monopoly. There's other parts, but go sure. go to SEO, SEM class and see who you talk about for 90% of the class, right? So yeah. Google, their product, especially for locksmiths, needs to be a more trustworthy deliverable. The product, and, and don't, go, don't get me wrong, they have absolutely been trying. Go look up my name and the word Google locksmith on the internet and you'll see I've been giving these poor people a hard time for a long time because I know <laughs> it's hard. But the other problem is they have not consulted with the locksmith industry very much. A couple times back in the day, and it was mostly for anti-scammers. Imagine, if you would, integration of e-commerce in everybody's platform. Mm -hmm. Everybody has some form of it 
indigenously. We may we work with contractor commerce, but they're in cahoots with Google and those sort of things. Now you're not going to get people claiming to charge $25, right? And then they charge you $250 because they simply won't be there to be found in the first place if, if Google had that involvement. The second one is hyper-localization. So right now, Paul, if we went to set up a Google business somewhere, Google business profile, it's all based around the business. How dumb is that for a mobile business? Sure. It's, it's, it's close to irrelevant because at least in some degree, you know, at least we're not calling someone in Los Angeles. But a simple example would be that for Papalock of Nashville, when my technician logs into Pulsar or our e-commerce platform, it logs them in on Google. So they can see, oh, Popalock actually has 15 people running all over the city. This other person, yeah, they got a thousand ads and a thousand listings. It's just two people, one who's an SEO black hat expert and one guy who knows how to pick locks. That's what happens today. We could eliminate that. But again, it's like cat and mouse. They make a change. Everybody else makes a change. But I do see that as part of that, that coming together to make it more transparent, local and true. (laughs) And transparent, local, true. I love that. Talk to me about your learning path with Google. I think you recently did some certifications, but you kind of dive in and you don't just accept things as face value. You get to know them, you study. What else have you been learning about Google and what certifications have you been seeking? My start on this was that in our franchise, we don't force people to do a lot of stuff. We have standards, but forcing people to do something are two different things. So example is we don't force people to buy stuff from us. Right. The first question you should ask a franchise, do I have to buy everything from you? Yeah. And it's a 300 percent markup. Oh, my God. We don't do that. So what evolved is each franchisee, even in areas like B&I or uh, LATEP or certain uh, chamber of commerce, they would meet some local SEO person, engage with them and go off in their own direction. Now, imagine all of these people are having problems after they do that and they're contacting us for resolutions. So it just forced us to go. So why does it do that? Right. And became more of an audit process than a developer process. Uh, so I got tired of having so much trouble. A neologism is a means a word that doesn't exist that somebody makes up. So communication is one that me and my friend like because we communicate while we commute. So we call it communication. And sometimes I don't know the right word for something, but I, I know what the concept is and what we're trying to do. Training, education and that stuff has uh, helped me communicate better. So it doesn't take me two weeks to figure out for everybody to go, oh, that's what the heck Rob was talking about, about that. Okay. So what I do like is Coursera. It's the word course and add the A at the end of it. Coursera is Google's internal platform that they like to subsidize, send their people to and support for that training. So right now for $39 a month, and this is without scholarship or anything. But if you if you in any way don't want to do something because you don't think you can afford it, go to Coursera and click that scholarship button and and fill it in and give a heartfelt reason why you think you need to do this. Digital analytics, digital marketing, e-commerce, project management, IT support, even down to point now where I'm learning JavaScript, where they just added uh, where, where you can put in new language scripting into HTML. And, and I had no idea. It was like that one little thing uh, may enable us to uh, do something on the screen now easier, faster, and with less clicking or something than we had before. $39 a month, you can work at your own pace. Uh, most of the courses are designed to take about six months. That's working about 10 hours a week. 
But if you work in kind of rushes, like I do, like bursty, hey, I got four hours tonight to go food with this. It'll let you go as fast as you can. And I, of course, love it's equality, right? You're not being set back. So to help answer your question that you asked earlier about what what do I think be, uh, can be done about the about the disparity of the uh, resources, that stuff is one of them and making sure people right. know it. Right. So <laughs> that, that's been my most recent. Got it. Well, selfish question as we round out here, because it, it's an hour. And this is exactly why I was afraid to interview you, because I have a million. I could I could just sit and listen okay. to you talk forever. I learned so much um, for you know, if you kind of expand out a little bit as you talk about, you know, the, the locksmith world. It's very, very similar to the home services space for HVAC, plumbing, electrical, very similar. Um, so I'm excited for the folks in our audience in that category to learn from you. But for the contractors who are kind of curious about e-commerce or curious about how to kind of integrate something like e-commerce into their business and might be afraid to, what kind of advice or, or thoughts do you have there? So many people have the idea that e-commerce, oh, we're going to go start an online store, right? That's the mental process. That's actually not what happens in my view. What happens is, is that you go in and have to question every fundamental part of your existing process and analyze those to see if they can even be integrated electronically or do they depend on some sort of uh, mysticism, right? That, that That's impenetrable. Go, well, I can't do that because at that point, we always call John and ask him if he can do it, right? If that's okay. the, you can't computerize that. We have to make sure now let's involve John in the loop. What can John do that, that the computer can't or what's he referencing or what's his rules of thumb? And so the hardest part of this is that Whatever you end up with and whatever you end up pitching to your people to do is going to be different than what they do today. And gaining that consensus can only be done by planning ahead and to say, here's how we're going to here's how we're going to implement solicitation, feedback and organization of that stuff throughout this project and do it before. (laughs) Here's, Here's a little rule of thumb. First to market. I don't think there's a a far more educated guy, I'm sure, at Harvard or some lady at Yale that knows way more than me. But if you're a first to market, that is some crazy uh, exponential advantage you generally have in most places. And where are you going to do it? If you're doing something unique and creative today and you haven't been able to put that into a true e-commerce, not just a contact us and email us, but something that helps drill down to what that person actually needs. There's no way you, the company's going to survive. And, you know, at least not over 100 years, it might survive five, 10 years, because the idea of someone walking in or having to physically call and speak to a human being is wasteful of everybody's resources. I'll tell you what, before we go, Paul, what I'm most proud of that was counterintuitive. And you'll remember this. I had to defend this a bunch of times. Oh, Rob's trying to put all the dispatchers out of work. All these little folks that work from home and take all the calls, he's trying. I very rarely ever brought up, oh, this is going to do this for you. And here's why. Because what we have figured out is it led to more calls, number one, right? So you're starting to add stuff to the top of it. The most painful, stressful, anxiety-inducing part of the call, which is to talk to the customer. How do you spell that? Even their name, right? Having to ask someone who may have a, a name that's more difficult to spell can cause anxiety on the dispatcher. So now they're more focused on customer care tasks, like did the call get to the person it was? Hey, it's getting a little bit older. We call that navigation. And navigation means they help the technicians in the field. They help the locksmiths in the field. 
they reach out to customers with that human element that no e-commerce can ever do. Like she sounded upset when she called. Let me call that person back. I know it's only been about two or three minutes. Hey, just wanted to make sure. Oh, yeah, I got the text message. I got the GPS. I see the person's in route. Thank you so much. I didn't believe you, right? I didn't believe you were going to send all this cool stuff you said, but we do. And so to me, that's my proudest thing is that we've done this without hurting anybody, at least majorly. I'm sure somebody could take exception with it, but it wasn't like we automated this and put a bunch of people out of work. We automated this and almost gave everybody a, a, a raise because they don't have to work as panicked and, and, and stressfully as they do. So <laughs> my priorities, I know, should be profitability. I know you've heard me say it when, they, when I break it up in me. I'm like, I personally don't care if this makes money or not. I just want to make sure it works. And I always have a franchisee there to, to correct that to go, hey, Rob doesn't, but we all do. So <laughs> this episode, like all episodes, is brought to you by Contractor Commerce, plug and play online stores for contractors. We see a future where every contractor has an online store. 